Ah, so, once again, hello. I've been away for a couple of weeks. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I, I got married. I got married. <clears throat> Which has been wonderful. I understand the appeal. That's a picture of the day. If you're Facebook active, you've maybe seen several up to this point. Um, but it's been a, just a good, good 15 days now. We had a beautiful, spectacular wedding and a really good honeymoon. We did the Alaska cruise sort of thing, which you know, we highly recommend. Um, but kind of along, uh, along with that, uh, you know, certainly they always say like, you know, the, the honeymoon has to end. And then we've been getting a lot of people telling us, well, hey, it's time, you know, back to reality, which we really don't like hearing, but like it's been unsolicited, like a hey, back to reality, here we go. And it's uh, maybe uh, good timing that it's also kind of back to school season for uh, a lot of us in the room or in the next room, whether have someone in our own home who's back to school, works out of school, or we have a relative close that, you know, we've uh, even seen online, I've been seeing post after post after post of the annual back to school, you know, Facebook pictures. Uh, but with back to school and especially for us back to reality, uh, here it, just, it can just be a time for a new season. And, uh, you know, being a very newly married man, I've been uh, learning some things. <laughs> I'll share one. <laughs> Um, so very much back, uh, Asha and I, we, uh, we got back super early a couple Wednesdays ago and kind of took that Wednesday as a recoup day, but then we both went back to our respective uh, work that Thursday. And I've learned something that there are two types of people in this world when it comes time to wake up in the morning. There are those that when the alarm goes off, they get up and they start their day, you know, like God intended. And then there are others that... Uh, there's a snooze option that, that comes along with the alarm, and uh, you can choose to ignore it. You can choose to press it and just kind of lay there. And uh, I found that um, these, it, there's at very much at odds. There's a black and white, two very contrasted views, ways to wake up in the morning. Um, <clears throat> I just have to know, who's on the alarm side? Like, you get up, you start your day, again, as God intended, that scripture. Gospel of Andrew, you can find it in there if you look hard enough. And then some who like to snooze. And, and here's how the alarm was. I, I, there's no reason for me to get into this much detail, but hey, I have the microphone. <clears throat> it's, and it's a very, like, my alarm is very, ah, 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 like, again, you know, time to get up. And then um, Ashley's alarm, it's very beautiful. It comes on like, you know, just kind of this orchestral, almost Pierre Gint kind of thing with the doo-doo-doo-doo-doo. It's, it's time for morning. And it's, it's like the message it's sending is like, hey, good morning. The rest of the world has been up for some time now. And if you want to get up, you can as well. But if you don't, that's okay too. You just keep laying there. But I will, I will allow this. That was Thursday morning. Friday morning, the snooze went off, and I did actually linger laying there in bed for five to ten minutes. So we'll see if this marriage thing changes me in that way at all. We'll see. We'll see. And I have lost my message notes. Who knows where they are? I'm just, if so, I don't know who I would even send to go look for them, but we'll see if I can do this from memory. Anyway, so it is back to school season. Oh, perfect. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> So yeah, there are pictures uh, all over Facebook, you know, back to school, um, even, you know, from pre-K all the way up to, you know, people celebrating their final year of mandatory school. Like I saw several, uh, you know, hey, beginning senior year, I see uh, several pictures saying, hey, you know, people moving into college for the first time. So it is very much a season that we're all familiar with going back to school. 
And there's a certain amount of preparation and planning that goes along with that. Uh, I know whenever it was, when I was in school, I always got really, really excited about the planning. I know I'm in the minority here, but uh, even now, if I'm like in Target around back to school season, I get really excited if I pass by like that back to school aisle, everything's on sale. You got the pins and the folders and the notebooks and things like that. Again, most people don't get excited about that. I'm one that still does. Um, I remember like even when I was like in middle school, high school, I would, you know, get the folders way ahead of time and I would organize them. Let's see if you get this detailed. I would even do like, you know, certain colored folders and notebook go with certain classes. Like green was always math. Uh, blue is always English. Uh, red, that was any form of history. Did anyone get that detailed or am I just, okay, good. There are several of us. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, well, it is, since being back to school, it's very much a time of preparation. And when you go to class, uh, teachers, they might do a number of things, but it's not uncommon for, you know, day one or day two for the teacher to hand out maybe a small, simple quiz, kind of like as a review, just kind of allowing them to assess, hey, what do you remember from years past? Just so they can kind of get everyone on the same page page and move forward with the things you have to cover for that next year. Uh, well, we're in the habit, you know, the staff here of planning message series way, way months in advance. And we just, we try and do this at least once a year, just kind of like a, a time to maybe stop, pause a little bit, uh, take a breather, uh, and just kind of review uh, this thing called discipleship. Uh, about four or five years ago, we kind of renewed the Southwest mission statement around here. And today it reads that we are following Jesus and making disciples. So about five years ago, if not a little longer, uh, the Southwest leadership, they kind of, uh, kind of got together and said, hey, we need to kind of maybe refocus or even recommit to this thing called discipleship. But the thing about discipleship, if we were to go around the room and ask everyone here what you think discipleship is or what a disciple is, uh, we would likely get scores and scores of different answers. And honestly, uh, most of them would probably be really close to correct. There's no set biblical, like the Bible never says, hey, here is a definition of discipleship. So here's kind of what we do uh, just as far as uh, kind of the philosophy and the strategy that the Southwest, that the leadership around here kind of buy into. We always look to kind of one verse in particular to kind of uh, give us a, a home base or starting point for what exactly is a disciple. And we look at, uh, it's in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, Matthew 4, 19. And here's how this verse goes, or as answering the question, what is a disciple? And disciple is simply a, a Christian. It's a church, a Bible word. It just means student or follower. So if that's a hurdle for you, just if you just hear disciple, think student or follower. But here's how it reads, Matthew 4, 19. And he, he being Jesus, said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Now we have to do some digging because even in that, you, it might be hard to say like, I am having trouble finding out exactly how you get like an understanding of what a disciple is out of that verse alone. Well, what we do here, we're gonna leave this up for a while so we can, and it's also in the message inserts, uh, but we like to carve this verse here into three different points. Um, we'll talk, you will use this language over the next three weeks, but especially when Roger is delivering this material, he'll break this down into head, heart, and hands, and I'll do the same. You can kind of divide that into three different parts. So here's how it goes. Uh, the first piece is we look at those two words, follow me, and that is the headpiece. And that pretty much comes down to deciding to follow Jesus is a mental decision. It is a, a it's an intellectual uh, point where we say, yes, we are going to follow Jesus. It begins in the mind and that comes with knowing who Jesus is, but also trusting that he is who he says he is. So follow me is that initial uh, decision. Yes, I will follow Jesus. 
And then we go to this next phrase where Jesus says, I will make you. And this is the heart piece. And this is arguably the, it's one, it's the most exciting, but also it's arguably the most difficult piece of discipleship where we uh, decide that, hey, we're not in charge of our lives anymore. Uh, Jesus gets to be the uh, loving guide as far as how we live our lives and make our decisions. And this, uh, I will make you, that's allowing our hearts to be changed by Jesus. We're allowing Jesus to take up more geography, more territory in our hearts. And that's pretty much surrendering our hearts saying, hey, Jesus, do with this what you want to. Jesus is going to make us into something. That's the heart piece. And then those last uh, three words, he's going to make us fish for people. One thing about being a Jesus follower is uh, we're not made for the sidelines. We are not tourists. The idea is that we are active participants in whatever God is doing. This is the hands piece. We're actually doing something uh, with our relationship with Jesus. So follow me. That's the head. I will make you. That's the heart. And fish for people. That is the hands. So uh, we're going to put this up as far as our understanding of what a real follower, student, disciple of Jesus is, here it is, a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. And you might ask, what exactly is the mission of Jesus? We'll get that in week three, but we always look to uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, hey, go into the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all that. We'll, we'll get into that um, more in uh, the third week of the series when uh, Roger's back the next two weekends. But that is our understanding, and we think this is worthy. If you're someone who likes to write things down, I like to leave some space in the notes just so you guys can write or decide uh, what's important. So I'm encouraging you. I'm I think this is arguably one of the most important slides for the morning. So again, a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. So we're going to do a deep dive in each of these three sections over these next couple of weeks. But today, uh, it's all about the head, that first part, that following Jesus the, on the mental side of things. And my goal is, I'm, I, I don't want this to, even though it's very much uh, head-focused and intellectually focused, my hope is that the morning won't feel academic. But there is just as much uh, scripture uh, as far as kind of developing the intellectual, the mental, just that piece of discipleship as any other. So here's where we're going to go. So we're going to look, uh, the biggest chunk of scripture we'll be in this morning is Luke chapter 5, and this is a look at the formal calling of the first disciples, again, Luke chapter 5, and especially that of Simon Peter, who we typically just know as Peter. Uh, so we're going to be in those first 11 verses of chapter 5, looking at this very uh, famous, uh, often told uh, story of when Jesus formally calls his first disciples. And then after that, what we're going to do is we're going to take a, a hard, uh, maybe difficult even, look at one huge problem that gets in the way of, I would say, everyone in the room as far as that daily decision, that habit of deciding, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. Because I would also argue that saying yes to Jesus is not necessarily just a once and for all time decision, but it's very much a daily thing. Who am I going to follow today? But we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 5 now. I'll read it. It'll be up on the screen. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go, where, go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, 
We worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time, their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. And a shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. And his partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. So let's do some background kind of on this fisherman sort of thing. Uh, many people in here, just because from conversations and things I see on Facebook, many people, part of the church, have that great hobby of fishing. We love to fish. Uh, these are not necessarily those guys. This was a profession. This is what they did for a living. They were likely very, very good at it. One thing I know about the Sea of Galilee was, at least at the time, it was famous for just, it was just teeming with fish. Uh, if you were a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee back at this time in history, there was no reason why you couldn't flourish in your business. But on this particular occasion, uh, in their night of fishing, they had come up short, which especially how, um, how much produce there was in the water, just how much fish there was to catch, this would have been, one, really frustrating, but also maybe even a little bit embarrassing. But it's likely in the morning or kind of midday at this point, and they have come off, uh, off the lake, and they are on the shore, and they are cleaning their nets. And again, they are tired. And here's something I know about kind of the nets they did back then. Uh, this wasn't like a, these are really, really big nets, and there were different types of nets that they would have used. Uh, but just imagine, like, they would have had to clean out all the, like, the sand, the dirt, the grind, the seaweed. They have to, one, clean all the nets, like, piece by piece. It would have been very tedious, boring, uh, hard detail work. But also, just from use over, you know, days and weeks and months, uh, if they needed any mending or repairing, they would have been doing that as well. So Jesus gets done teaching and he notices this and he says to Peter, hey, got an idea. Uh, why don't you uh, kind of get your nest together and we're going to go fishing again, but this time go out in the deep waters and do it there. Now, uh, one thing we don't get from scripture is we don't get the tone of which Peter might reply. We don't know if Peter rolled his eyes or not. Because even though it is Jesus, Jesus is not a fisherman. Peter is a professional fisherman. So essentially, you can just imagine like whatever you do for a living and just imagine some amateur saying, hey, do it this way. Wouldn't you love that? Because I know probably in the back of Peter's mind is one, we don't fish in the deep waters. It's more of a shallow areas that we kind of get our fish. But also too, this is the one of, if not the worst time of day to do this fishing. But he's been around Jesus for, Jesus has been on the scene for about nine to 12 months at this point. And Peter would have been around Jesus. He's met him before. He's familiar with his miracles and teachings. But again, until the end of this section, uh, Jesus hasn't done that formal calling of Peter yet. So Peter knows Jesus. This isn't their first time meeting. So because he, at least he respects him enough, he says, fine, okay. So all these nets they've been cleaning and mending and repairing, they get back in the boat and they go out and it's like, hey, what do we have to lose? Other than maybe, you know, just daylight and the rest of our afternoon. And as the text says, they let down the nets and bring it up and it is a massive, massive haul of fish. Maybe even probably the largest haul of fish that they've ever received to the point that their own nets start to break and even start sink. They call over James and John, guys, get over here. Uh, the text even says, I love how detailed the Greek text can get uh, just as far as how they were, how he beckoned over James and John. Like the text pretty much says between the lines, he was holding his head, had to do that head thing like, guys, get over here right now. And they get over here and both, both uh, boats they are like kind of being crushed under the weight of all these fish. And all of a sudden, for the first time, 
Peter gets to experience firsthand what the real blessing of being around Jesus really is in a tangible, very concrete way. And maybe uh, just in your own life, uh, there comes a point like there's kind of being around Jesus, being around church, being on the kind of the sidelines of what Jesus is doing. And there, there's that side of things. But then there's also, we know what it's like when we come face to face with the blessing, the tangible, concrete, inner hands, things we can see blessing that Jesus gives us, right? There's a difference that comes when we see it in others or around and when it happens to us. Well, this happens to, to Peter for the very first time here. <clears throat> And it says that when he realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. Earlier, just a few verses earlier, he calls him master, which anyone like in a position of respect, you would call them master. He changes that word to Lord. And in his saying, Lord, he is pretty much recognizing and proclaiming, okay, pretty sure you're, you're God's son. Like you are div- divinity itself. So it's a moment of worship. And there are a few things that we can kind of either relate to Peter in certain ways or even be encouraged by Peter's example in certain ways. One thing I notice in uh, Peter's posture, again, he falls to his knees. Uh, A couple of things. One is he's worshiping Jesus. He recognizes him exactly for who he is. He says, he even recognizes his own sinful nature. You know, please leave me. I'm a sinful man. On the one hand, yeah, he's worshiping, but also there seems to be an element of fear or at least nervousness here. And this isn't always going to, like, if, if you know anything about Peter, you know that at some times he's very, very bold, and other times he very much gives in to his fear. And one thing that may be in a roundabout way that can be an encouragement to us is even though uh, we might love Jesus, follow Jesus, worship Jesus on a regular basis, it's also pretty common for us to feel afraid or even nervous in our relationship with Jesus. Just that holy fear, what is he gonna ask me to do? Uh, What is he going to want me to obey or start or even finish or stop doing? Worship and even having this nervous side of following Jesus can be pretty common. But Jesus would say, don't be afraid, just like he does here. We don't have to be, but just if if there's any, there might be some encouragement to get from Peter's example in this particular way. But this is what Simon Peter is committing to, and he serves as an example for us doing. Uh, one thing I really like, so this story pops up in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, that Matthew 4:19 piece that we got, that's what he says there. Uh, there's this word when he says that I'm gonna, you're gonna be, uh, you'll be fishing for people. The word that he uses there, fishing for people, that phrase he uses there, fishing for people, it only pops up one other time. I think it's in 2 Timothy. But again, kind of between the lines, we're working with the Greek language, kind of coming into English. This is pretty much what Jesus is actually saying, at least in Luke's gospel to Peter. It's not so much that you're gonna be fishing for people, but uh, this phrase that also pops up in 2 Timothy, uh, Jesus effectively says, you're going to be setting captives free. You know, leave these nets behind. You're not going to be catching fish anymore. You're going to be freeing people who need freed. <clears throat> in the, the 2 Timothy, where it's used there, uh, Paul's writing Timothy, and the language is, you're going to be saving people from the, the grasp, the clutches of Satan himself. That is the mission that Peter has said, yeah, I'm going to. And we'll certainly see different iterations, the highs and lows of that if you keep following uh, Peter's uh, life throughout the Gospels. But one thing about you kind of going in a new direction now, one of the things about this time in history is that especially the Jewish people uh, reading the prophets and being faithful to to everything that they had to say in the scriptures, uh, they were ready for the Messiah to come the rescuer, the prophesied individual who is going to save Israel and what they thought was overthrow the government that was oppressing them at the time, that'd be the Romans and going to bring in a new kingdom on earth. That was the expectation. 
And as soon as Jesus does his first miracles and he's baptized there in the Jordan River, there were rumors starting this world like, hey, this guy, he might be this Messiah that was prophesied. And people are starting to pay attention. Peter seems to have enough confidence to say, yeah, I think there's enough here to think, make think that this might be the guy. But one thing that we do know at this time, people were not only hungry for someone to follow, at least this kind of person, but they were very much ready to follow someone in this way. And one thing that I'm a really, really big believer in is I'm a firm believer that everybody, no exceptions, everybody follows something or someone. I don't think any one of us can get out of this. We all follow something or we all follow someone. And we know that anything can get in the way of uh, people following Jesus. We know that we can all agree that following Jesus with all the joys and the blessings and promises and assurances, following Jesus is also difficult and challenging. And there are any number of things that can get in the way. And we could spend tons of time even creating our laundry list of things that we decide to follow instead of Jesus or things that get in the way of us following, following Jesus, making that mental decision of every day saying, giving our first yes to Jesus. But there is one huge, huge, huge problem, I would even call it an epidemic, that I says, think might get in the way of uh, everyone in the room. And I'll be the first one to say, like, first of all, like, I have fallen prey to this. I've been even part of the problem in this. There is a piece of advice, there's a phrase, there's a nugget of American wisdom uh, that is just part of our country's DNA, even the world's DNA, but especially the United States' DNA, our culture. And I'll get there in a moment, but uh, this phrase or this piece of advice that's been used, most of us in very, very caring, loving, well-meaning moments have been given this terrible advice. And again, I'll be the first one to throw my name up on the number one spot on the list, but also most of us have probably even given this piece of terrible advice to other people, people that we know and love. And this, uh, this advice tends to happen at times of personal crossroads, uh, times of personal doubt, times of opportunity, times of just changes in lifestyle, times of uncertainty. Here's the phrase, here's the piece of advice that I would argue is just absolutely terrible. And we'll see if we can agree. But has anyone ever told you in a time of uncertainty, doubt, change, whatever, has anyone told you something to the effect of, just listen to your heart? Or they ask the question, what's your heart telling you? I know I've received that advice or that counsel. I've even mistakenly given that counsel before. But one thing we like to do at Southwest is, you know, we'll actually read it later in the hour. Paul says, hey, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but let God do some, let God do the work of changing you. And one thing we like to do or try to do at Southwest is hopefully lay alongside, hey, here's what the, the world would have us do, but here's what Jesus would have us do. I want to pull up two, uh, two scriptures, two, a couple of verses uh, that speak to uh, what exactly the heart is capable of. You know, knowing that very much part of the, the country's DNA of follow your heart, listen to your heart, do whatever your heart is telling you. Here's what uh, scripture says about the human heart. This first one's from Jeremiah 17. It's written, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Well, let's live with that for just a few seconds. The next one from Mark 7, this is Jesus talking. Jesus says, For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. 
All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So just from those two verses alone, here's what I've just learned about the human heart. It's deceitful, it's desperately wicked, and it produces vile things. Is that what we want to give authority over our life? Sounds like a terrible decision to me. We know that the world says, follow your heart. And Toucan Sam says, follow your nose, right? Here's what Jesus would say. If the world says, follow your heart, Jesus says, follow me. The world says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. Uh, And if uh, some of you, you know, you approach me after we're looking for certain quotes. I forget who who said this particular quote that I'm going to share here in a moment, but I thought it was beautiful. And I think we can really latch onto it and, you know, kind of even write it down. Uh, But I came across this beautiful quote a few days ago, and it says, our hearts weren't made to be followed. They were made to be led. Our hearts weren't made to be followed. They were made to be led. So it kind of leads to the question of what does it take to follow Jesus or what's this all about? What's this look like? And we're going to take a pit stop at this very um, bold, maybe one of the more bold challenges, even commands that Jesus issues for us, but I'll read it from Luke 9. Then Jesus said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it, but... If you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. One of the first attributes of a disciple or a follower is this mental acceptance of Jesus. And in that mental acceptance of Jesus, it's us saying Jesus is now in charge of our lives. Now, some of us have a problem with submission. Some of us might have a problem with obedience. Uh, God has made some of us headstrong and strong-willed and very independent. And I think that's a good thing oftentimes. But also that can lend itself to some of us saying, I don't want anyone in charge of me. Or even when it comes to Jesus being in charge, we can bristle at that. One thing about Jesus being in charge, it is always love and grace and truth. It is always for our good. Always. I don't know who needed to hear that this morning, but it's probably something I need to hear pretty often enough. He says, if you want to be my follower, you have to give up your own way. Uh, Putting that in another phrase or a way, it it means you need to disregard your own interests. You know, Jesus says, take up your cross daily. Pretty much what that means is when you get up, you know, you have to decide, you know, am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to follow myself of the world? When he says, take up your cross daily, he's effectively saying, hey, you need to put your own desires, you need to put yourself to death. When you live out your day, it needs to be me living in you and not yourself. Again, I think this is one of, if not the most difficult command that Jesus issues to his followers. But on the other side, there is is goodness, there there is grace, there is power, there is all wonderful things. But the promise here is that if we say yes to Jesus, then it oftentimes means saying no to ourselves. Uh, I I was doing some reading and some studies, and honestly, a lot of these studies, they didn't have a lot to back up their data, but I thought it was a good talking point anyway. But some studies show that we make as many as 35,000 decisions every day. At least those kind of decisions that even like micro decisions that can determine just how we go about our day. 35,000 decisions in any given day that we can make. 
everything from, you know, what are we going to wear in the morning to a circumstance like this, where I imagine at the end of every sentence I say, you have the choice of, am I going to keep listening or not? Those are the kind of the, how they can add up over the long haul. But when I was thinking about how I treat my own 35,000 decisions a day, even if it's not that much, it's certainly several, several thousand. Uh, But I asked myself these questions and I'll ask, you know, you gathered in the room here, these questions as well. How many decisions have you let God make on your behalf? Even up to this point in the day. But on a normal day for you, how many decisions have you let God make on your behalf? Or how many times have you said no to Jesus and yes to selfishness? Or no to Jesus and yes to the world? One thing that I was thankful to hear, and I'm still trying to learn it, but one thing I was thankful to hear years and years ago is a disciple is prepared to give their yes to Jesus no matter what. A disciple is always prepared to give their yes to Jesus no matter what. Well, like I said, I, I want to stay kind of in the realm of the brain, the head, the mind. And so I kind of wanted to end on a verse about the mind for us this morning. Remember, the world says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. Uh, Paul knew this truth, and he decided to write the, this particular truth to the church that was in Rome. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, I think it's in your, your a message, your bulletin insert, verse 2. Here's what Paul writes to the church at Rome. He says this. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I really, really like how Paul sets up a good contrast for us. Uh, Paul could have been well within you know, his rights and well within the realms of truth, just say, hey, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world and end it there. He could have put a period and that would have been fine. It still would have been a command. But what I like, and now it's not just Paul that does this, but most of the uh, biblical writers, at least New Testament writers do this, is they give this alternative. They give this other option. It's not so much a stop doing this and that's it, but stop doing this and begin doing this. Trade one habit for one that's more healthy. So he says, don't copy the world. You know, don't fashion yourself after what the world is doing. Instead, let God do something that only he can do. Instead, Instead of copying or following after what the world would have you do or what everyone else is doing, instead, let's kind of open the doors of our brains, of our hearts, and let God come in and do a work that he has in mind to do. He says, let him change you by changing the way that you think, how you make your decisions. Other versions, they tell us to be changed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, in my personal, when I just do my, this is from the New Living Translation, my own personal study, I do the NASB. And I know that version says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And that word renew means just to improve the quality or even better, it means to renovate. One thing I've noticed for a long, long time is Americans love a good renovation story, don't we? Just look at what's on your Netflix queue or what you've been watching or go turn into HGTV. We love a good renovation. Uh, you, you know, I noticed, how, I'll just read some of these TV shows that are popular right now or have been popular. See what you, um, see if you, or just throw up a hand if you watch one of these. If nothing else, one thing that uh, these renovation shows have done for us, we, we now know the word shiplap. We, this has been part of our, our vocabulary now for a while. Some shows about renovations. Fixer Upper, anyone watch Fixer Upper? Yeah, let's keep these hands up just so we have a good indication of this. Fixer Upper, Property Brothers, Love It or List It, 
Uh, this is off the air now, but it's coming back next year is Extreme Makeover Home Edition. It's being rebooted in 2020. Anyone watch that when it first came on? Yeah, we love a good renovation story. Uh, one thing, as soon as we came back, Ashley and I, we wanted to start, you know, watching a show or two, you know, from beginning to end, you know, just to, together. And we landed on, it's on Netflix, Tiny House Nation, the micro homes of people. Yeah, we have a hand up here. We're watching this. And it is like most of these stories, they're really, really good. And I don't know if this is, I know it's not funny, um, but in some ways it's beautiful. In some ways it might be a little sad. Here's what they do, because when they come and renovate a home or a structure, they're not just renovating the home, right? They also pick people whose lives are just, you know, just as dilapidated and falling apart as the homes they're doing. Uh, this, hadn't been a, this hadn't been a story, but it, like they pretty much all come down to, uh, I don't know, like, oh, Susie, like, you know, her, Susie's dad threw away her favorite toy when she was five years old and she's never forgiven him and now he's paying for a house to be rebuilt. It all has something to do like that, right? That was kind of the story on one of these things. And the, one of the episodes that Ashley and I were watching just a few days ago is it was this father-daughter combination and you could just tell that there was this just huge dysfunction and tension between this father and daughter. And like they were trying to repair a relationship, but also you could see that, uh, I don't know, for some reason people might think that, you know, if we renovate a home, then it might renovate us or I don't know, that whole new home, new me sort of thing. Anyway, part of this, actually, I don't know how much that has to do with the message, but I always kind of want to... <laughs> I always kind of want to, you know, kind of fast forward like a month or two and find out how these families are really doing after the cameras have left. I don't know. They do that sometimes. Sometimes, most of the time, they don't. <clears throat> but anyway, we, we love a good renovation. And we were inspired and we even shed tears when it, we have like the beautiful moment of the family or, you know, when they see the new project. Anyway, uh, with that feeling we get or seeing something that's been, uh, that's gone from ramshackle and dilapidated and in disrepair to something that is beautiful, nothing short of beautiful, this renovation. What if we let God come into our brains and do that kind of renovation? I don't know what the state of your brain is, what your mind is. Uh, most of, probably all of us, if our thoughts were displayed for all the world to see, we would be horrified, we'd go home, and we'd never come back out ever again. So I don't know, again, I don't know what your mind or your brain is like, how you make decisions or what your inner monologue looks like on a daily basis. But I know mine could, be, could use some renovating. I know the areas of my brain that are in disrepair, that need serious repairs, and that have been, I don't know, ignored for far too long. What if we let God come into our brains and start doing some renovations? The promise on the other side of this is if we let God do his part, and then it says here, it says that we will learn to know God's will for us, and that will is good and pleasing and perfect. And isn't that what we're after at the end of the day? We want to know what God's plan for us is. We want to know what God's will for us is. And we might have to allow some renovations to occur before that happens. But on the other side, we know that it's good, it's pleasing, and perfect. Which, no, those are three things that I know all of us want more of in our inner lives. So kind of keeping in the spirit of the mind and thinking and making decisions, we're going to uh, kind of move into this communion time. We do this every single week if you're on that team. Um, this can be your cue to uh, serve, kind of go to the back and get the plates. But we're going to uh, shift into a different mode of thinking or using our mind, and we're going to do this thing that we all know well. We're going to do some remembering. 
uh, typically, and I understand why, is typically on a Sunday morning or a small group, or even if we're doing private scripture study, uh, for whatever reason, we tend to think that uh, the spiritual life is composed of, of the heart and the spirit, and that's all true, but sometimes we neglect the mind. We neglect the brain sometimes, but I think it's very much a part of faith, just so much the other two are. But uh, in his last uh, meal, his last uh, full meal with his disciples there in the upper room, Jesus says, hey, when you guys gather together in the future, when of you guys gather in my name, I want you to do something. I want you to remember me. And I'm gonna give you two pieces to help you in this remembering. One, there's this bread. It represents my body that's going to be broken for you. And they had wine. We have juice. He says, this wine, this is representative of my blood that I'm going to freely shed for you. And whenever you gather in the future, I want you to kind of just pause, take some time, and remember this. And remembering, it starts in the mind, but this kind of remembering, I know if uh, the Jewish people, uh, their idea of remembering, it wasn't just a mental thing, but it was a full body they like to relive, they like to experience. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to have this time to remember. And certainly let's begin in the mind, maybe take an inventory. I don't know if uh, uh, there's something from the message, hopefully it's been, that's blessed you or has prodded or poked something in your heart that you might want to address. Or you might have something huge going on in your life that you might be like, hey, message was fine, but uh, God's been working through me in other ways, even up through this morning. Whatever it is, this is a private time between you and Jesus. So make it holy and make it for you, but this is a time for you and Jesus alone. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll observe this time together. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, the next several minutes, just help us remember. Help us center ourselves, help us pause, uh, help us stop, just to think for this time of prayer and worship and gratitude and remembrance. Uh, for those of us who uh, maybe need this uh, piece of our spirituality um, explored or discovered, uh, I just pray that uh, maybe we can think through uh, who's in charge of our brains? Where, uh, when we get up in the morning, who or what are we saying yes to? Uh, who or what are we letting guide our decisions? And if there needs to be repentance that goes along with that, I pray that that happens now, beginning with me. But in all other things, we want to leave this room looking more and more like a follower, a disciple of your son, Jesus. And it's his name we all pray together in. Amen.